to you. As Adam said, it is good to be here today and to be gathered with the people of God at this gathering of North Hills Church. We are glad that you're here, whether you're a covenant member or a guest alike or a first-timer or if you just showed up to the wrong place at the right time. We are glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezra. Caroline here. I'm often, there's Caroline. I forgot to say it, Caroline. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do. I forgot last time, so I had to make sure I caught up this time. We do hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, we have pew Bibles somewhere. We don't have pews, but we have pew Bibles. And so they are back there in a stack if you need a Bible. Well, I do appreciate Adam and Evan uh, these past couple weeks working through the genealogy of chapter 2. Uh, but before anyone accuses me of being scared to preach through a genealogy, especially for those who knew, I have preached through three genealogies here at North Hills Church in the past 11 years, so it's about time someone else got a genealogy. Uh, but we'll talk about that a few times this morning, a, a, great, a great section through chapter 2 there as we look at the genealogy in Ezra's account. Uh, every church should work through the various genealogies in Scripture, I am uh, deeply convinced it is another reminder of how systematic expositional preaching benefits the church because how else would you ever find yourself in a genealogy unless you were working through the books of the Bible and you just see how rich and beautiful they are because God has them in there for a reason. So thank you, Adam and Evan, for being faithful in that. But with that in mind, let us continue our journey through Ezra this morning in Ezra chapter 3. We're going to read uh, I was assigned the first seven verses, but we're going to stop short. We're going to go from verse 1 through 6b. So, let's read Ezra 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatil, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Let's just go and finish this section. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon and to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for our continued journey through the book of Ezra. Thank you that we come to chapter 3 this morning, Lord, by your providential timing. As we do uh, work our way through Ezra in these first several verses, Lord, would you lead us and guide us this morning by your Holy Spirit? Would you keep me from error and would you help us to look to the magnificence of Christ. In his sweet and strong name we do pray. Amen. 
So as we come to Ezra 3 this morning, uh, just by quick recap, we see the first couple of chapters um, obviously are building up to chapter 3. Chapter 1 gives us the why of the return of Israel to Jerusalem. They have been in Babylonian captivity, as we know, uh, for 70 years. For two generations, they have been away from Jerusalem. And as prophesied for 70 years, and as prophesied, they are coming back to Jerusalem. And they do so by God stirring in the heart of Cyrus. We see that in chapter 1. That is, uh, that is the, the why and even the how of the return of uh, Israel to Jerusalem to ultimately rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple as we'll begin next week. But then chapter 2 gives us the who of this return to Jerusalem. It's not all of Israel. Uh, we believe there are uh, over 100,000, maybe hundreds of thousands of Hebrews who are still in Babylonian captivity. And by the record that we see in Ezra chapter 2, there's just under 50,000 people that are listed. You can see there in verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. And so you add those numbers up, it's just under 50,000 people are returning to Jerusalem to rebuild their, uh, not even their former lives, but the former lives of a few generations prior to God's holy city. So chapter 1 is the why and how. Chapter 2 tells us the who of this return. And now as we come to chapter 3, we will see the when and the what to a degree. We'll see when this is taking place, why that's important, and the beginning of the rebuild. But ultimately that will start next week and throughout the book of Ezra. And so, uh, as we look this morning at our text, there are two main observations that I would like us to look at together. The first is the importance of unity, the importance of unity. Many of you thought it was impossible that I have less than three points, but we have two this morning. The first is the importance of unity, and the second is the priority of worship. The importance of unity and the priority of worship. And that's why we cut off at 6b and didn't finish through the end of verse 7. And it's just too much good stuff here in Ezra chapter 3. So, let's start this morning with looking at the importance of unity. When you go to just the first verse in chapter 3, it says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So just in this one verse, there is so much happening. And we see the importance of unity. That the people of Israel, at least the remnant of Israel, are returning to Jerusalem. They're returning to Jerusalem and the surrounding towns, to this area that they have been gone as a people from for over 70 years, or for 70 years. And so when the, it says there in the beginning, when the seventh month came. Now that's not seven months from when they left exile. That is actually a particular month of the Hebrew calendar. Uh, Tereshi, I believe is how you pronounce it. And so when this seventh month came, this Tereshi month, it was a very important month. It was a month of great celebration for several of the Jewish uh, holidays and feasts were found in this month. And so what they're saying is, you see, even from the very beginning, this idea of restoration of the people of God. That they're able to, again, worship uh, as they had worshipped before the Babylonian captivity. When this certain month of the year came about, they were able to worship God in the way God had intended to be worshipped. 
Tarishi is a significant month in the Jewish year. It contains several of the major Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah, uh, the Jewish New Year, followed by Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And also, as we'll see this morning, it has Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of Booths, as it says here in the ESV. And so, but let's not let this providential timing be lost on us when they show up at uh, back in Jerusalem, because we know there are no coincidences. It wasn't just happenstance that they were free from exile. It wasn't just chance that they were in exile for 70 years. All of these things have been prophesied. How long they'd be in, in captivity, who would, who would capture them, when they would return, and so much about their return was prophesied. And so it stands to reason that the Lord brought them back providentially at this particular month um, to begin and reinstitute worship, as we'll see in a moment, of the priority of worship. But first, as we're looking at this importance of unity, they are gathered together. Uh, ultimately, as it says, they come together as one man, this beautiful language that we see. Now, as they are coming back to Jerusalem, this is both an exciting and an exhausting time. Imagine, if you will, if you were, I know we can't really even fathom, but just try to imagine being the people of Israel, and you've been gone for 70 years, and there may have been some of those who had come back, and they had been taken captive, but for the most part, most of these had never stepped foot in Jerusalem, God's holy city. And yet here they are about to return to Jerusalem, this city that they had been told about by their parents and by their grandparents, and heard about for so long. It's so exciting to return to Jerusalem, God's holy city. But at the same time, exhausting. They had only been back a few weeks. As you look at the timeline, we, we uh, suspect they had only been there a few weeks whenever we pick up in uh, Ezra chapter 3. And just those few weeks, they had took them four months to travel uh, after captivity to get back to Jerusalem. And when they come back, there's no welcome party, right? They're, and the house isn't like they left it. The city isn't like they left it. When they were taken into captivity 70 years ago, Jerusalem was being raised. The temple was being destroyed. And so they come back to likely a very similar scene. The temple is gone. Remnants of the foundation are there. Their houses are in disarray. Maybe there are people in their, uh, in their house. Maybe there are people in their community. They come back to a very difficult setting, as we'll see in just a moment, as fear creeps into their heart. Their city and their towns are likely a wreck. Temples destroyed. Imagine how exhausting this must be. And as they come back to this particular month, as we'll see, they'll celebrate the Feast of Booths. One way that people celebrate the Feast of Booths were about living in a, uh, in a tent for about a week. They would actually build these tents or these temporary structures and then put them on top of their houses to remember how the people of Exodus, the Jews during the time of Exodus, how they would live during that time. And so... You've been gone, you've been in captivity your whole life, you travel four months, you get back, and now it's time to go pitch a tent and live on top of your house for a week. So as exciting as it was, you can only imagine how exhausting this must have been. So how were they to engage in this festive month? How were they to be excited? How were they to, to, to start anew this life in Jerusalem after all of this time in captivity? How could they do this? Now, we know ultimately through the strength of the Lord was their only way in which they could do this. They could not do this on their own strength because they did not get out of captivity on their own strength. They didn't make this journey on their own strength. It is the Lord who has sustained them. 
But we also see not just the strength of the Lord, but even the strength of one another. For they gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So their strength is in their unity. They are coming back as a united front. So we see the importance, the emphasis, the essential nature of unity this morning. The emphasis of unity and the way that it's described here uh, is is very astounding to me, if you will. When you go back to this genealogy in chapter 2, let's just reread it real quick. No, let's not do that. Adam did a fantastic job reading the genealogy a couple of weeks ago. But you see that in that genealogy, you see the emphasis on these families, on these names of these heads of households and their sons. So you see all of this individual kind of roll call, if you will, in chapter 2 and, and summed up to that 49,000 and some, some odd people. And then after all of that, after the emphasis of, these, of calling out these families, these, these heads of households, these sons, and, the, and all the different roles that they have, then when you come to chapter 3, it, puts all, it rolls all that up into one. It says they gathered as one person. They didn't gather as 49,000 different people. They didn't gather as these different families. They gathered as one man to Jerusalem. We spent a couple of weeks discussing this genealogy, as we've pointed out. And Adam made, a, made a, a good observation that we don't know much about those names. Unlike some genealogies we see in Scripture, but we do know a few things about those names, that they are many people. We know that they are a diverse group of people in, in many different ways, although they're all, uh, most of them are of the Hebrew uh, people. But they also have different roles, and you can see in chapter 2 the different roles that they had. But the unity that these pilgrims found was in their desire to worship God. And this is what we see in the beginning of chapter 3 here, is that they are gathered as one person for the purpose of worshiping the Lord. This is why they return. It is what they have set out to do is to worship God. They didn't come back just to get this fortified uh, city because they knew it wasn't. They didn't come back to regain their temple because they knew it was destroyed. They didn't come back for any other reason ultimately to worship God because Jerusalem and this area was essential to properly worship the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 133.1, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good was it for this remnant of Israel to be gathered together as one man for the purpose of worship. And this is true for the church today. This unity is not just something for those of Israel in the Old Covenant, but it is true for us today. We see Paul saying a couple places. One in Colossians 3.16. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you, among all of you. So it doesn't use the word unity here, but we see this picture. Let the word of Christ, the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And so our unity should ultimately be found around the person of Christ for us today. It is gathered around uh, these of the old covenant, among, around the Lord, and ultimately His fulfillment of the Messiah who was to come. And you see in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
And we even see in the prayer of Jesus this desire for us to be one as He is one with the Father. So the, this picture of unity, this picture of oneness is found in the Old Testament, it's found in the New Testament, it should be found in our very lives. And what brings us together is not our interests, it's not our hobbies, it's not our socioeconomic status, it's not in anything external. What brings us together, what brings unity to the body of Christ is the Lord. Specifically, whenever we are gathered around the worship of God. Unity is essential. Secondly, we see the priority of worship. The priority of worship. We are here introduced to, uh, we've mentioned the names and the genealogy, but now we're going to get to know them a little more. We'll see them next week and we'll see them throughout the book of Ezra. In verse 2, it says, Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josedach, and uh, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shilatil, with his kinsmen. So we have these two guys who show up on the scene. Now, Yeshua, is he, the, these are both leaders amongst the people of God. Uh, Yeshua is of a priestly leadership, and Zerubbabel is a civic leader. And we're going to see this uh, more importantly next week. But both of these men, their desire is to restore the practices of proper worship amongst the people of Israel. They desire to restore the practices of proper worship amongst the people of Israel immediately for one primary reason. And it's not the reason that you may would suspect. It says they, these two guys show up on the scene. And what did they do with their kinsmen? They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. So we see what they do and why they do it. They build this altar to burn these offerings. It's going to list a lot in just a minute. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar in its place. And here's the reason. Here's their motivation. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Fear was in the hearts of the people of God as they came back to Jerusalem. Because they didn't come back to Jerusalem like they often we see them in the Old Testament. They didn't come with armies and with leaders and generals and commanders. It was this band of, of the remnant of Israel who on this long journey came back to Jerusalem. And now they get back and there's lots of scary folks there. They've been gone for 70 years. And it says fear is in their hearts for those who are in the land. A small group, no army. They're fearful of the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Sumerians. Plenty of people there to, to fight with. And they were not ready for this. They did not come in their own strength. As we said, they came in the strength of the Lord. But they did not try to draw near to God on their own terms. Their desire was to draw near to God. And they didn't do so on their own terms. And you can only imagine what they had picked up from Babylon. You can only imagine the new worship practices and the new way they could worship. You can only imagine the lights and the smoke they picked up in, in, uh, in Babylon. But they didn't come to worship God on their own terms. They came to worship God on His terms. They drew near to God by worshiping God the way that He had commanded His people. And we see this at least in three different occasions, three different ways in this passage where it says it was as it was written or as it has been appointed or as the rule was. So they were clearly looking 
to the way that God had already established that worship should be carried out. Because God determines what holy and acceptable worship is, not the worshipers. It didn't matter how they felt they should worship the Lord. If they were to worship God and draw near to Him through worship, the only way they could truly do so is by the way the Lord had prescribed. And so with that in mind, let's reread uh, these few verses here. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of, of booths as it is written. They offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offering at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord, from from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. So we see that, that worship has been reinstituted immediately. They didn't wait. And you, as you finish that verse 6, it says the foundation had not even been established. The foundation wasn't there. The walls weren't there. The first thing they did was rebuild the altar for the purpose of drawing near to God in worship. And as that altar was, was rebuilt and the sacrificial system was reinstituted, the one striking thing that you could only imagine for this, these people of God, among many things, I'm sure, but was the amount of bloodshed on a daily basis. And we see this hinted at in chapter 3 here. Because these weren't just every now and then offerings. These were regular offerings. Offerings every day. And not just every day, but in the mornings and the evenings. So on a regular daily basis, multiple times a day, they are sacrificing these animals to the Lord as He has outlined in His Word. The onlooker would have been reminded of their sin, their need for a substitution, and the atoning power of blood. And all this had been lost in Babylon. But as they come back to Jerusalem, as this altar is rebuilt, they are immediately drawn back to the price of sin, His blood. And the remnant would be longing for the coming of the Messiah. Because that's what defines the remnant. That's what defines the small portion of Israel throughout all the Old Testament are those who continually look to God for His saving hand. For those who continue to look for the coming Messiah. And so they are seeing this sacrificial system reinstituted, this altar being rebuilt, and the system being brought back. And the priests, led by Yeshua there, and the other priests, as they are making this daily sacrifice, and they are reminded of their need of a Savior, their need of a substitutionary atonement. But now we know even better today than they did in the Old Covenant. We know that a drop, never a single drop, from any goat, any lamb, any bull, any animal has ever saved a single sin. Has ever forgiven a single infraction against a holy God. We know that it is the person and the work and the sacrifice of Jesus that saves and so our response is the same response as the people of Israel in Ezra chapter 3. Our response is worship. So why do we worship? Because of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. Worship is our priority. 
It is our number one priority as believers is to live a life of worship. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, our whole life should be consumed with worship. Which brings us to the question, what is the ultimate goal of the church? And many would say evangelism or missions. Some would say giving. Say, look, y'all have no carpet here. You got ratty chairs. Let's make giving the priorities. We can get this place fixed up. But that's not the priority. Even evangelism. It is worship. Worship is the priority of the church. Let me read you an excerpt from John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He said, but worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God and preaching. You cannot commend what you do not cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. So worship is a believer's priority. Paul reminds us of that, as we said in 1 Corinthians, that worship is the all-encompassing aspect of our life. Everything we do should be about worshiping our great God. It should be worshiping the great name of Jesus. Everything we do as we gather on Sunday morning should always be about worshiping Jesus, not lifting up North Hills, not lifting up anything we do, our plans, or anything like that. It should always be to look to and magnify the name of Jesus. Christ. But as God's gathered people today, what does that look like for us? There are ample instructions in the Old Testament of what proper worship looked like to the people of God. But what does that look like for us today? Israel was concerned with restoring proper public worship immediately. What about us? Orderly worship is not just a concern of the Old Covenant. As New Covenant believers, we are to worship the Lord as He has prescribed to us. Not in creative ways, not in new ways, but we are to worship the Lord as He has prescribed to us. He calls His church to worship through prayer, through singing, through reading, through the exposition of Scripture, and specifically through the two sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the things that we gather around every single week. This is our desire to worship the Lord as He has prescribed to us. Worship is a priority. Unity is essential in the church. So church, as we look back at the faithfulness of those who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, those who were united in their desire to worship God, we are reminded of our own calling, are we not? Just as the Israelites in Ezra's time were driven by their longing to honor the Lord in unity, so we too are called to be a community of believers who worship the Lord, who take seriously the gathering of His people on a weekly basis. They face hardships, fears, and uncertainties. Can we relate to that? This is a week full of hardships, fears, and uncertainties for our teachers, for our students, 
Maybe in your own life, you have a list of uncertainties and fears. Maybe like you can relate to the people of Israel. So as we fear, our solution is not to tighten the belt and pull up our boots and to, to strengthen ourselves and our resolve. It is to look to the Lord. So may our priority as the people of Ezra's time be to look to the Lord and worship. May we recognize the importance of unity in worship and draw strength from each other and from the Lord. Our response to the grace and love of Jesus should be one of continual worship. Our lives as individuals, not just as we gather on Sundays, but as we go about in the workplace, in the school, at our homes, in the community, at Walmart, at wherever it is, should be a life of worship. If our life, if any aspect of our life cannot be defined as, a, as an act of worship, then we should prayerfully ask the Lord to change our heart and change our behavior. In the business and challenges of life, let us not lose sight of our true purpose as individuals and as the church. Let us strive for the unity that we see in Ezra's time, a unity that is centered on the worship and the great and glorious God. May we be a people who not only know about God, but truly know Him. Because when you truly know God, then your whole life is changed. You can know about God, and you can fake it. You can know about God, and you can have a, a great exterior presence about yourself. But if you truly know God, and He knows you, you've looked to the person of Jesus then there is a marked difference in your life that does not come from without but it comes from within the person of Jesus so let us go forth this week not simply as individuals but as the body of Christ united in the purpose of love and worshiping Jesus for as we have seen today worship is not just part of our life it is our life Let's pray.